Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Who is this? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, it's very kind. I do appreciate it. Um, I'm going to assume that some of you have started, uh, you've become a part of Denver Community Church in the last four months, and you have no idea why people are yelling at me from the audience. My name's Michael. I work here. Uh, I've been on sabbatical, um, and I do want to say, being a part of a faith community that takes the health of its leadership so seriously that everyone who's on staff, not just like a few of us, everyone uh, is given a time of several months every six to seven years, um, it means a great deal. And so for our elder team um, who gifted this to me, for several of you in the community who walked with me during my time on sabbatical, uh, there was also, there's also a group called the Lilly Foundation that gives grants to pastors so that they can take sabbatical, and um, I received one of those. So there's so many reasons why I stand here before you this morning grateful, uh, and it's good to be back here with you. I understand that some of you emailed a, a few in leadership and said, hey, what happened to Michael? Um, and I assume that that was because you were concerned. Some of you are sitting here this morning and like, oh, that guy's back. I lost a bet. Um, <laughs> But it really is, it's good to be back. Uh, I know that we've been in the Gospel of Luke, at least that's what I was told. And, um, but this morning, coming back, what I wanted to do is just share a little bit uh, of what I'm learning, what I learned, what I've been called to, what I'm feeling as I come back from sabbatical. So with that said, we're going to spend our time this morning in Matthew chapter 26. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, you can find it on your device. There's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And you can follow along with that. Uh, this story picks up with Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Um, it's really the day before Jesus is crucified. If you don't know the story, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, er, I'm sorry, arrives in Jerusalem, and he goes there to have the Passover meal with his disciples. And he does so somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And after he has this meal with them, we're told that he goes toward the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, and he goes to a place that we know is called the Garden of Gethsemane, which just means that there's an olive press there. And Jesus goes there to pray, and this is where we pick it up in verse 36 
of Matthew 26. It says, Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And in the next moment, we learn that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, kisses him. He's arrested taken through a sham trial that night and in the next day, and then crucified the next morning. Now, I've read these verses in my life, I don't know, a lot, <laughs> hundreds of times. I've even preached on these words before. But one mor morning in late June, I read these words, and something occurred to me, something hit me that I've never seen before in these words. And really, it's this, that this prayer... This story, we might say, is a prayer or a story about obedience. Now, I'm fully aware that there are some words that can cause a reaction in us. Some words that might make us feel like a rash is about to break out. And I also realize that that can be heightened in the context of church on a Sunday morning, and even more so when there's a pastor talking about it. And I think obedience has the power to be one of those words. And there might be multiple reasons why that word can cause a reaction within us. Some of it might just be the culture that we're a part of, you know, America. Like the hardcore individualism, don't tread on me, all these ideas. Or one of the phrases I hear more and more, I'm just going to do what's right for me. As though like we're our own authority. I was talking with someone several weeks ago who said, I'm my own boss now. And I was like, I'd love to be in your annual review, it's probably glowing. But there's this idea that we live with in which we kind of do what we want. It's kind of the American way. Bill Plotkin, who's a depth psychologist, says that when he looks at the culture in the United States, what he says is a, sees is a very unhealthy, adolescent culture. Now, that's not to, like, rip on teenagers, because he puts the adjective unhealthy in front of it. Have you ever been around an unhealthy teenager? Seriously. Have you ever been around... You ever been around a healthy teenager? No offense, Inc. Oh, you're all waiting. Okay. You're pointing to your friend. <laughs> the irony in that is that you might... No, I'm just kidding. Um, there's this idea of like whatever you say, they do the opposite. This is what he's pointing at. He says we're this narcissistic, self-referential, self-absorbed culture. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I, what, what do you mean by that? 
just pay attention to politics. And by the way, that's not a partisan comment. That's a comment about the leadership that we continue to put into place in our country. Pay attention to the news. You know, when they have the talking heads on there arguing over the most inane things, and you're like, are we, we're really, we're still doing this? Yes. There's this, like, resistance, this anti-obedience idea. So when we say it, some of it's like, oof. Now, I want to recognize that oftentimes behaviors come from somewhere, and so it's very possible that this idea of obedience being met with resistance within us comes from the way that obedience has also been abused by people in authority. And I'm fully aware that that has happened in the context of churches and has been done by pastors. It's been done with this kind of like coercive and threatening way. Like if you don't do this, there is surely punishment that is going to follow. And of course that punishment can be anything from like some sort of discipline to like excommunication to being thrown out. And by the way, I'm fully aware that I'm standing here in front of some of you who've experienced that firsthand. I've experienced that firsthand. Being thrown out because I didn't measure up or I didn't obey the rules or whatever it was. And when we see this kind of abusive behavior, there's also the behavior that loves to invoke the name of God when it comes to obedience. Almost like, well, you're not obeying me. You're obeying God, yes. My parents, uh, I grew up up with my parents always around uh, the Christian faith, a very conservative, fundamentalist Christian faith. And there was one organization in particular Uh, that my dad worked for for a time, and they had a very, very long list of demands and a long list of rules that everyone had to adhere to. They were actually well known for it. And it was, if I told you some of these rules, you'd be like, that, people like that don't exist. That, that sounds weird. That sounds like a cult. Um, (laughs) And they had this thing that they would do. They would say, your willingness to obey these rules shows your willingness to submit to God. Huh. That's weird. So, not going to see a movie at a movie theater, you could watch it in your house, that apparently is somehow connected to what God wants. You see how this has been manipulated and abused? And so if you're here and you hear the word obedience on a Sunday morning and a pastor brings it up, after being away for four months, you're you're like, oh my gosh, are we we kidding? Yeah. Yeah. I understand why you have that resistance. And all joking aside, if you're here this morning and you've been threatened and you've been manipulated and you've been abused by people in places like mine who've just thrown this down on you and rained fire and brimstone on you, I want to say two things. First of all, that's not the voice of a loving God. And secondly, I'm deeply, deeply sorry for what people in my place have done to you. When we read these verses and talking about Jesus, we see something different. And I'd love to tell you that when this idea came to me on that morning in late June, that when I had this idea of obedience, I looked up into the heavens and said, Oh Lord, you brought your servant hither to hear thine will. I have no idea why I'm talking in a British accent or in Old English for that matter. I actually felt some resistance within me. Something welled up, and I was like, oh, obedience. 
And no matter where you are in response to that idea or that word this morning, I do want to suggest that maybe obedience is something worth paying attention to. Now, here's why I say that. The monastery uh, where I was is a Benedictine monastery. If you're familiar with the Catholic orders, they're basically different sects within Catholicism. And the Benedictine order is named after a fellow named St. Benedict. Now, I knew that I was going to be at a Benedictine monastery before my sabbatical, and I also knew that I knew nearly nothing about St. Benedict or the Benedictine order, so I thought, well, it might be good to read a little bit about them and understand what I'm getting myself into. And so I was reading about St. Benedict and the Benedictine order, and very quickly I realized that one of the central values of St. Benedict and the Benedictines is the value of obedience. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I dug a little deeper, like why would this have become one of the three things that he focuses on? Well, part of the reason is, is because the monks in monasteries, as we understand them today, took root and began in the third century in the deserts of Egypt. And in the third century deserts of Egypt, men and women began to see, in the words of Thomas Merton, society was a sinking ship, and they said, we don't need to stay on this if we can swim to shore we can become more healthy so that we'll be able to go back out and help people find the shore with us. And so they began initially as hermits, and then they began to live among one another, and they began to build and create these monasteries. Now, it started with great earnestness and great sincerity over the couple of centuries devolved into particular monks saying, you know what? I'm not sure about this monastery anymore. I'm not sure about our abbot, the person who's in charge, or the prioress. I think there's probably more righteous people at another monastery, and because I'm dedicated to righteousness, I'm going to go over to that monastery. And people just began moving around. They began kind of doing whatever they want. Eugene Peterson observes this and says the question that came up in St. Benedict's mind is, were people actually moving because they were being called to move? And many of them said they were. And by the way, if you've been around Christians for any amount of time, when people say things like, I think God is telling me to, it can often be an excuse for bad behavior, can't it? And so he said, what the question raised in Benedict's mind was, is God really calling you to do this? Or are you avoiding something? Or is this a preference? Or is it rooted in self-righteousness? And so St. Benedict came around and said, no, 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 we're going to talk about obedience. Now again, this was not St. Benedict coming in saying, you will do everything I have to say. He wrote that his rule of life and the order of St. Benedict today reflects on what St. Benedict meant by obedience. And here's what they wrote. Obedience comes from the Latin word for listen. The practice of attentive listening is foundational to the Benedictine rule of life. Benedict wrote that everyone in the community needed to listen to one another and that sometimes God speaks through the youngest person in the community. Obedience is attentive listening. It's paying attention. That's actually what the word means in its roots. And I read this and found it really interesting. Actually, I read it and found it surprising. Given the way we often think of obedience as just adherence to a particular set of rules. What became more surprising to me was the reality that in the original languages of the sacred text, which would be Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, there's no one-for-one -one translation in either the Hebrew or the Greek 
There's no word that translates directly into our English word, obey. Is this surprising to any of you? I mean, obedience is pretty central to religion. You know, we've got to keep people on the right path and make sure everything's happening and make sure that we have some measure of control. No, there's actually no word in the Hebrew or the Greek that is a one-for-one translation for the English word obey and what we mean by it. The word in Hebrew that's most often translated as obey is the word shema, which is the word hear, or to listen, or to pay attention. In Greek, it's the word akuo, from which we get acoustic. It means to hear, to listen, to pay attention. It seems that St. Benedict knew something about this, and he said, no, we are going to be a community that listens to one another and that listens to God, that pays attention. Now, I can tell you, my first day at the monastery, it was, it was a little intimidating. I mean, everyone comes in for breakfast, and they're all dressed in their black robes. I'm wearing, like, shorts and a t-shirt. Like, who's not one of you? This guy, you know, I mean, just... And I was surprised at breakfast because most of their rule and most of their life is in silence, but breakfast was like electric. Breakfast, everyone was alive. Well, it's because they begin their day together in prayer, and their prayers are all prayers of praise. That's how they start the day. And so they come in for breakfast, and like the energy is just humming through it. I know it sounds crazy to talk about being in a room of monks wearing black robes and being like, the energy was electric, but it really was. And I couldn't get over the joy that I saw on their face. Like the only association I ever had with monks was Monty Python's Holy Grail where they smashed themselves in the forehead of the plank. These guys were filled with joy and laughter. There was a deep-rooted connection they had with them. I was also blown away by their hospitality. The monastery where I was has been a continuously operating monastery for over a thousand years, and it's in Spain. And I was taking Spanish classes, and I was, I'm going to be honest with you, I was pretty excited to like test my skills, you know, like, oh, language ninja. So I go in the first morning, and they're talking, and I don't understand one word they're saying. And so, like, my, like, excitement just was like a flower in the sun. Well, the next morning, one of the monks comes over to me, and he's with another monk, and he's kind of, like, elbowing him, and I'm like, oh, I got in trouble already. Like, I don't, you know, I'm typical me. And so he says to me in this language that I don't understand, but I pick out one word, do you understand Catalan, which is a regional dialect in the northeastern part of Spain? And I was like, no. And he's like, do you understand Spanish? It's like, Un poco. (laughs) And then the monk next to him says to me in English, you speak English, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, we're so sorry. We didn't know that you didn't speak Catalan. We actually thought you were Spanish. And I was like, well, historically, my family, never mind. And then, um, (laughs) so they decided, because not all the monks spoke uh, English, that at breakfast they would speak in Spanish so at least I could understand some of what they were saying. Like that kind of hospitality of like, hey, there's this guy here, we're not sure he's a pastor or something. Anyway, let's speak here. There was humor. I didn't think there'd be humor among monks. I don't know why. I just, I guess I didn't see him as human. The day I got there, this one monk was showing me around the monastery and didn't speak, spoke very little English. And he is showing me my room, and then he shows me the prayer chapel, and then he says, now I'll show you the way to the next whiskey bar. The door is yes. (laughs) You can't make this up. I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, you know. 
There was this interesting thing that obedience is central to their life, and what I saw was no heavy burden. What I saw was not people who were just like afraid, but people who were free and joyful and funny and together. Now, of course, I'm sure if I spent more time there than a week, I'd be able to tell you about some of the relational tension that exists and some of the shortcomings and everything else. But I had this palpable sense when I was there the entire time that there was something deeply, deeply moving in this community of people. When I left, I emailed the priest or the monk who oversees all of the pilgrims and people that come through the monastery to thank him. And I said, there was something there, Father Planus, that I felt like I could almost touch. And he replied and said, of course there was. It was God who was always among us. Like the beauty of a community that says, no, 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 we're about obedience in the sense that we're talking about attentive listening to one another and to God. St. Benedict talked about this posture of listening and said, we do this with an unfeigned, humble love. We listen with open hands. We listen with humility, even to the youngest member of the community, because we never know through whom God's going to speak. And so that morning in late June at this monastery, this Benedictine monastery, I read these words, and for the first time, I'm like, oh, I think this is a story about obedience. And then I had a book with me that keeps me company. It's called The Guide to Prayer, and I had it my entire time that I was at the monastery. And they give each week a theme as you go through of all of these different prayers. And so that first morning, I'm like, okay, I open it up. And the theme for that week, obedience. Not kidding. I'm like, okay. You know, there's times where you're like, okay, someone somewhere is trying to get in touch with me. That's how I felt. So I read the first prayer of that week after reading the story, and this is what it says. Lord Jesus Christ, you have shown us what it means to be a servant. We ask now for your grace and your strength to faithfully follow in your footsteps of servanthood. We pray in the name and spirit of Jesus. Amen. You've shown us what it means to be a servant. Let us follow your example. And so I spent a great deal of time dwelling on this story that we read at the beginning. And I began to realize that for all of the things that we may associate with obedience, I want to suggest I think they might be absent in this story when we read of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Like Jesus isn't praying to a God that is dictatorial and angry and threatening. God's not like, I am going to crucify you if you don't do this. No, God is saying, no, I'm with you. In this. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that when Jesus kneels and prays in the garden, he says to God, Abba, which is the Hebrew word Papa or Daddy. It's something you would see with like a small child running to a loving father when they're playing together. Jesus isn't approaching God like, oh, I'm going to get zapped. No, he's approaching God with deep, deep love, deep, deep affection, deep, deep trust. Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan talk about this vision of this prayer, and this is what they say. This prayer is not a fatalistic resignation, resignation to the will of God, but a trusting in God in the most dire of circumstances. That in this act of obedience, we see a deep trust, even though Jesus seems very aware of what's coming for him. Maybe it's this deep trust that allows Jesus to say, to his friends, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I think sometimes like we, we make Jesus into something he's not. Do we do this? 
where he's like a little bit less than human and he's Swedish. And so he's like, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You feel like you're watching a Star Wars movie where all the actors are terrible, but the story's good. Am I right? No, I, I, Jesus is human. Jesus, when he says this, there's something deeply troubling. It says he's disturbed in spirit. He's brutally honest with his community. He's also brutally honest with God. We read it, not what I will, but what you will. In modern parlance, it's, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. Jesus knew what laid ahead for him. Jesus had seen crucifixions. He knew the pain of it. He knew the disgrace of it. He was a part of a tradition that said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He knew what was coming. And anyone who had the understanding of crucifixion, like Jesus and those who lived in Palestine in the first century, would have said the same thing. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. This is the kind of brutal honesty a relationship of trust with God creates. Maybe you're here this morning and the only thing that you need to see from this story is that the example of Jesus teaches us we can be brutally honest with God. Maybe you're holding back. Maybe you've held back. Maybe you think there's some things that you can't say. No, no, no. If the only thing you need to hear this morning is this, then please hear it. Jesus teaches us you can be brutally honest with God. This is a relationship born of trust because if you don't trust someone, you're not honest with them. And this is what we see in the heart of Jesus is this deep trust, this deep honesty. And Jesus isn't sitting there either going, you know, I'm going to do what's right for me. Crucifixion, I've heard, is well, it's kind of a dead end, right? No, Jesus has a deep relationship of trust with God, and he opens himself up to whatever God has in mind. Keep in mind this conversation that Jesus is having is not with this angry man sitting on a throne in some distant galaxy. Paul tells us that God, the divine, is the ground of all being, the source from which all things flow, the life and the light and the energy that created all things and in whom all things hold together. That Jesus is in communion with this divine animating energy and he's saying, I'm open for you to do your work in me and through me to bring something brand new to bear in this world. In reflecting on obedience and reflecting on this prayer, Walter Wink writes this. He says, there's a new force field that appears that hitherto was only potential. A space opens in the praying person, permitting God to act without violating human freedom. The change in even one person thus changes what God can thereby do in that world. We are engaged in an act of co-creation in which one little sector of the universe rises up and becomes translucent, incandescent, a vibratory center of power that radiates the power of the universe. Obedience is opening a space in the universe within you that had never existed before that becomes a center of God's power unleashed into the world that can bring something into the world to bear that's never existed before. It's an act, Walter Wink says, of co-creating with God. Do you see why I said at the very beginning of this teaching that it might be worth paying attention and considering the word obedience? 
Because if we just make it like simple adherence to some random set of rules and the people who are more disciplined or who are rule followers, they're considered obedient. And for the rest of us, like, well, we're disobedient. And then there's the shame around your neck and the threats and the punishment. How small and boring of a story is that? No, obedience is opening something within yourself that has never existed in the universe. It is becoming a center of divine power to co-create with God and bring something into this world that has never before existed. This is what we see with Jesus. And he's so moved by that. He's so compelled by that. He's so deeply integrated in relationship with God that he even puts his full self into it to the point of his own death. This, this is the picture of unfeigned, humble love. This is the picture of being willing to hear and to listen and to engage and to co-create. This is what obedience is. The, the last time I took a sabbatical, uh, it was actually eight years ago. I postponed mine because there was like a pandemic. And, uh, I remember coming back last time, and I had, I had things in order. I had a, like, actually had a chart, like, kind of explaining, I think I should do these things. I had a, a three-page, for all intents and purposes, a report, um, kind of saying, like, hey, here's what I think, you know, is happening. And uh, I didn't come in saying, this is what I'm going to do, but it was very, very directional. I just really had it figured out. And after my time in the monastery, um, I was on a call with, the people who were, we call them our sabbatical support team. It's the people that walk with us through our time of sabbatical and we reflect with them and answer questions and talk about what's going on and see if we need to keep going down the same path. And I talked to them about this idea of obedience. And something within me said, you can't come back telling everyone this is what you're going to do. Because that's not obedience. You need to come back and say, uh, I want to listen together with you. Now, if you know anything about me, I kind of like to have things, you know, I'm okay with kind of making sure everything's just, just so. Making sure everything's kind of fits. But it was interesting coming back and saying, yeah, I don't know exactly what the next season is. And by the way, I'm not nervous about it. Asking questions like, what is my best gift that I bring to the community of Denver Community Church? And then asking this of our elder team, who virtually is our board of directors, they're the ones to whom I report, and, and, and listening. Asking them, what is mine to create? What is mine to do? And hearing and listening together. This is a sense of saying, yeah, I'm open, God, to whatever you have in mind. Do I have things that I want to do? You bet you. Of course I do. And I can be honest about that. And I have been honest about that. But there's also that and then the recognition of saying, well, now that I've told you what you want, would you help me listen together with my community to whatever it is that you want and give me the humble, unfeigned love to say yes to whatever that is? This is what obedience is, because obedience ultimately asks us the question, what is it that you, that I, that we, what is it that we will create? And so I ask you, what will you create? What will you create? 
you, like Jesus, can become a vibratory center of divine power in this world that God works in you and with you and through you into the world to bring something to bear in this world that's never existed before. What will you create? What will you create in your workplace? What will you create in your neighborhood? What will you create in this city of ours? What will you create right here in the context of Denver Community Church? What will you create in your home? What will you create among your group of friends? What will you create? Because if there's anything I know, it's this. All of us, all of us will create something. Obedience asks the question, okay, what is it you will create? Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for the example of Jesus. Uh, His honesty, his humility, his unfeigned love that allowed him to speak to you from his own pain and troubledness, but also allowed him to open himself up to become a place in this world for you to work in and through. God, may we recognize that Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he was crucified, you will do greater things than me, and it's better that I go so that the spirit that works in me will work in you. May we sit and maybe we wrestle together with the question, what is it that we will create as those who listen attentively to you and to one another? We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all the brothers and sisters said.